0: Welcome to News & Brews. I'm Mike Heslin.
1: And I'm Errol Yabuke. And there's lots of news happening this week, as there seems to be every week. Uh, But this episode is a little different. This is our second special episode of the week. Uh, We had a great interview with Chris Blattman earlier. Uh, This one is going to be a deep dive on one story uh, that Mike is going to walk us through episode by episode Uh, let's go deep on the January 6th hearings. Let's get into it. Hey, Errol. Hey, Mike. Good to see you.
0: You too. What a, what a treat. Two news and bruises in one week. Well, I was
1: going to say like, we, we basically told listeners like, Hey, we're going to take it easy over the summer. Uh, and then there's been like three episodes in a week.
0: Yeah. I don't know quite what that says about us, but we'll come back to it.
1: Uh, I'm excited about today's episode, though, because I can't wait. I I always love a good mic rabbit hole.
0: Yeah, this felt like the old Clubhouse days, just uh, going, developing like pages and pages of uh, notes and content and stuff to talk about. Uh, This is gonna be a fun one.
1: Yeah, unlike Clubhouse, though, this will actually live on
0: more than like in real time. Yes, not not just slink off into the ether.
1: Um, well, listen, I, I, I want to get to it. I would like to know what you're drinking. I have an appropriate beverage for today, but I, oh, I want to yeah. hear what you're drinking first.
0: Well, I am drinking today. So uh, last time we recorded, it was the morning and I went high noon. We're in the afternoon now, uh, but I'm going coffee today. I'm going Wandering Bear, cold brew, my go-to, always in the fridge, always on tap, reliable, strong coffee little milk in it let's go you
1: got your game face on that's right it's it's a game face made for radio i have a dc brow the corruption
0: perfect perfect which
1: is perfect
0: right right in front of your uh you log tv yeah i, I thought like.
1: i thought every time we record since i have a tv in my background now i should just have a different screensaver
0: love it Love it. This is a good one. This is a good one to start with. I feel more comfortable already.
1: Yeah. I I want you to feel like, you know, you're next to the hearth and next to the hearth, you can open and go down as many rabbit holes as you want. Well, let's do it. Let's do it then.
0: Last Thursday marked the eighth and final hearing of what we affectionately call season one of the January 6th committee's publicly televised hearings. They were originally going to do seven hearings, but then Cassidy Hutchinson got a new lawyer and they devoted an entire extra hearing to her testimony. Uh, that brings us to eight, which would have made last week's the final hearing. But according to Liz Cheney, quote, doors have opened, new subpoenas have been issued and the dam has begun to break, end quote. Ooh. Uh, so that makes the last hearing a season finale, not a series finale.
1: Is, uh, is that dam like
0: her popularity in Wyoming? That, I believe is that, that is is well beyond the begun to break phase. <laughs> Got it. Okay. No, we'll we'll talk about what that means. I mean, I think I think it it, it became becomes clear it will become clear later in our conversation what we know, which is a, an exceptional amount, but what we don't know, which also includes some really important things. So the the committee is now planning to work through August and hold more hearings starting in September. When these hearings started the conventional wisdom, I think, was that the hearings might be a good idea, but they would likely be you know, mostly a rehash of things that had already been testified or reported. So, like, if you're someone who pays attention to the news, it would be like eating leftovers, basically.
1: Yeah. And, and we actually talked about it on this show. We were like, um, this could be something, but probably not. It's more just going to be like a time to air grievances or whatever. And, yeah. and honestly, that's kind
0: of how I felt. Yeah. Yeah. Instead, it has been like eating Wendy's chili the stuff we knew is at the heart of it, like the old hamburgers are in there, but there's so much new flavor. It's got such a nice kick. It's been it's been quite spicy. (laughs) I have some other thoughts about Wendy's chili, which I will withhold um, from this conversation. (laughs) So Jamie Raskin, if you remember, a Democrat on the committee said they would blow the roof off the house. And it turns out he was more right than the conventional wisdom. Yeah, it seemed like a bad idea at the time for him to say that.
1: but joke
0: joke was on us. Yeah. Sometimes you deliver. (laughs) Um, There has been a ton of news generated at each hearing. Really. They've been extremely well-produced. They've been organized um, uh, in the way they've been presented around what committee vice chair Liz Cheney called Trump's sophisticated seven-part plan to overturn the election. So in a nutshell, those seven parts are Number one, spreading misinformation, saying the election was stolen, even when Trump knew it was not. Number two, trying to remove the attorney general and replace him with someone who would support false allegations of election fraud. Number three, pressuring Mike Pence to refuse to count certified electoral votes. Number four, pressuring state lawmakers and election officials to alter election results. Number five, directing Republicans in seven key states to send fake or alternative slates of electors to Congress. Uh, Number six, summoning a destructive mob to Washington and sending them to the Capitol building. And number seven, refusing to halt the attack on the Capitol once it had begun uh, by either engaging with law enforcement or national security agencies or instructing his supporters to stand down. So that is all good. And I think those are all coherent angles to the story. But uh, the best thing about the hearing so far, in my view, is actually they're um, like they're Only Murders in the Building Energy. Have you ever watched that show? Love that show. Phenomenal show. Steve Martin, Martin Short. Such a good show. But the, the premise of the show is they are doing a true crime podcast about a murder that has happened in their building. And they're solving the murder in real time, like as each episode airs. And that's sort of what the committee hearings feel like as well. Uh, they're they're piecing it together as they go. Like it's not exactly a mystery. We sort of know what's been happening here, but there's so many different stories within the story, and pieces of evidence that emerge, and video recordings, and audio tapes, and and, and new records, and new testimony from eyewitnesses, and uh, it, it really has made it compelling to take. Yeah, it.
1: it's it's strong serial energy. Like I think yeah. serial was sort of like revolutionized the podcasting industry Mm because it sort of not only told a story, it was part of the story. Um, And I'm getting a lot of that. Maybe that we should just make this into a podcast business idea.
0: (laughs) Yeah. We, uh, I don't know if we're the people to ask about the business of podcasting, (laughs) Uh, but, but I think that again, has made for very compelling hearings, but one shortcoming of the hearing structure, both being organized around those kind of seven different parts of the plan And having this real time only murders energy to it is that it has not always been clear how those different narratives, those different parts of the plan intersect or how exactly new evidence fits in with everything we already knew. Yeah, I
1: I would agree with that. It, It seems disjointed. They had a vision, but it's not like a chronological vision. Like they've laid out a bunch of stuff and they're sort of bouncing around.
0: Yeah, I Um, I think they made a choice and and I think they made a a bunch of good choices. Actually, I think the the choice they made around the structure has made for compelling content. Um, But if we're really going to make this a prestige TV miniseries, which should always be the goal, um, (laughs) we we need time boxed episodes with narratives running in parallel and intersecting and all coming together in the end, like a Dickens novel or a David Simon series.
1: So I know what a Dickens novel and a Simon series is. Um, I have to admit, I don't know what a prestige TV series is, but I'm, I'm envisioning lifetime.
0: Oh no, prestige TV is just like the blanket term for like HBO, Netflix, like the sort of modern era of high quality non-network TV.
1: Oh, really? I see, I liked my interpretation better, like a
0: lifetime. <laughs> lifetime. <laughs> Hallmark. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's quite the, the feel good ending we're looking for. So what I wanna to do today is start building that six part mini series. And what I'll do is basically take you through the episodes chronologically. Um, so Hollywood, take note.
1: Yeah, no, we're, we're available. Our DMs are open.
0: Uh, episode one starts on election night and includes that, that night and the aftermath of the election. So I envision the camera opening on a, on a close-up of Rudy Giuliani. Uh, pants on. But it's it's been a long election night. He's like definitely half a bottle of doers deep. Uh, t- Trump advisor Jason Miller actually testified that Rudy Giuliani was definitely intoxicated on election night when he uh, first advised Trump to lie that he had won the election. Uh, although that idea—that's an energy. Yeah, that that idea of you know lying and saying you won no matter what happens had actually also been suggested by Steve Bannon on his podcast before the election. So, uh, so that idea was out there, yep. uh, an important point the committee has made is that Trump knew he lost and he knew mm. that there was no fraud, uh, in any widespread way in the vote. Both of these actually became clear very soon after the election. Uh, so Jason Miller testified that the top data analyst on the campaign, Matt Oshowski told Trump very shortly after the election in pretty blunt terms, that's a direct quote that he was going to lose. Uh, And campaign lawyer Alex Cannon said he told Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, soon after the election that there was no evidence of widespread voter fraud, uh, which actually prompted Meadows to respond. So there's no there there.
1: Yeah, it's it's worth pointing out and you may get deeper into this, but it's worth pointing out that, like, this is not an inconsequential thing like him knowing that he lost is important because him knowing that he lost goes to intent. Like if he knew that he lost and he still tried to overthrow, then then that's like more of an intent uh, and and that has some sort of like legal bearing, which I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, d- depending about. on
0: exactly what the what the crimes are that that he's charged with, that that state of mind could be really important.
1: Well, conspiracy is one of them. Right. And so yeah. intent really matters in
0: conspiracy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, within two days after the election, campaign lawyer Cleta Mitchell puts into action an idea that she testifies may have come up even before the election. But she asks John Eastman, another lawyer, to prepare a memo justifying their case to state legislatures to overturn the votes in their respective states.
1: This happens like on
0: election night?
1: This is within two
0: days. This is episode one? Yeah. Wow. Uh, So based on this guidance, Trump and Giuliani start executing uh, what I'll call plan A. Plan A to overturn the election. Right. Which uh, importantly has an inside game and an outside game component. That combination is like a classic Nixon era dirty tricks play, uh, which is no coincidence since one of Trump's closest advisors, Roger Stone architected many of those very Nixon dirty tricks back in the day and has a giant tattoo of Nixon on his back.
1: I did not know that. I I'm, I'm convinced that he is the penguin.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Google, Google that tattoo, uh, <laughs> The inside game, and this comes directly from uh, testimony, I'm not going to Google that tattoo. Let's be real. <laughs> this comes directly from testimony in uh, the fourth hearing, is that Trump and Giuliani started filing lawsuits and calling Republican legislative leaders in every swing state and pressuring them to, without evidence, vote to overturn the will of their voters. The outside game is all about misinformation, lies, conspiracy theories, everything that has been teed up by four years of Trump playing footsie with QAnon and building the media apparatus of Fox News and OAN and Newsmax and Breitbart and, uh, and the, the, whole, the whole gang. Specifically, we heard from Georgia election workers Ruby Freeman and her daughter uh, Shea Moss that Trump and Giuliani amplified a video that was taken out of context and used the footage to make baseless claims that those two election workers had committed fraud. Uh, These women and their family members were then subjected to anti-Black racist smears, death threats. They were warned by the FBI that they weren't safe in their own homes. Um, Essentially, their lives were turned upside down by this. And that that all had to do with the outside game, just sort of ginning up the the passions of Trump supporters. Uh, That outside game also proved to be quite lucrative for Trump. So uh, Trump used those false false claims of election fraud. uh, We learned this in the second hearing. Uh, saying that there was a left-wing mob that was stealing the election to solicit donations for an official election defense fund beginning just in the immediate days after the election. Uh, The solicitation raised about $250 million in total. This is the
1: stop the steal
0: thing. uh, This is where that started. Yeah, this is specifically the asking for money uh, around the the election defense fund. $100 of that was raised just in the first week. The election-related litigation actually ended within just a few weeks after the election, but the request for cash continued. And the fine print of that solicitation did note that the donations would go not to an actual legal defense fund, but to Trump's super PAC that he controlled jointly with the RNC.
1: Yeah, which they'll, as you pointed out in your spicy nugget uh, a couple of days ago, go to pay you know Don Jr.'s girlfriend $60,000 for a two and a half minute speech. So that's actually even
0: better. It was actually, she was paid out of like a totally unrelated fund. So this, this first episode ends on December 1st, 2020. That's when Bill Barr, then the attorney general gave an interview to the associated press saying there was no widespread voter fraud. Uh, This is when Trump got so enraged that he threw his plate of food at the wall, smearing it with ketchup. Got it. Uh, So it was really important for me to know where the ketchup fit into Exactly, exactly. That's highly pertinent. That's Um, good. Again, just including the petty details uh, as we need to. (laughs) That brings us to episode two. This uh, generally spans the period from December 14th to early January. It starts on December 14th because that's when the Electoral College officially met and cast its votes. That is the actual election for president that Pence and Congress would have to certify on January 6th. At this point, what Trump campaign chair, Bill Stepien, called in his testimony, uh, team normal and team crazy (laughs) within the campaign, that's when these teams start to polarize and coalesce. So uh, on team normal, in their videotaped testimonies, former Secretary of Labor Eugene Scalia and uh, Ivanka Trump both stated that they called on Trump to concede the election at this point uh, and are summarily ignored. Uh, so when you say
1: polarize and coalesce, it's like they are going into their corners and they're hardening in those corners.
0: Yes, exactly. And you know all these people like Mick Mulvaney who have been saying Trump will go quietly once the legitimate legal challenges have been exhausted are, are not so sure now that Trump uh, has lost like 61 of 62 legal challenges and is just digging in even harder. Yep. So this brings us to the infamous unhinged white house meeting that took place on december 18th uh this included pat cipollone uh and and this, the story of this actually comes from his direct testimony so first-hand testimony trump Sidney powell michael flynn patrick byrne affectionately known uh and really exclusively known as the overstock guy um <laughs> was the pillow guy there too i you know he wasn't named but i wouldn't be surprised Uh, Yeah, yeah, but all these these other people are part of this, like, outside group pushing election conspiracy theories. Um, Cipollone said they exhibited a general disregard for backing what you actually say with facts. Uh, So that that was his description of the meeting. Cipollone testified that during the meeting, a draft executive order which would have directed the U.S. military to seize voting machines was discussed in a very serious way.
1: That is why I, I think the military probably would have disregarded that order. But the fact that it was even discussed is just wild.
0: And I mean, what's what's basically happening is like plan A has failed at this point. Uh, the electoral vote has already happened and they are now trying to figure out what plan B is. So that's that's one possibility. Later that night, uh, Trump has another secret meeting with Sidney Powell, Michael Flynn and Rudy Giuliani. Coming out of that meeting in the early morning hours of December 19th, uh, he sends the infamous tweet saying, big protest on January 6th in D.C., be there, will be wild. So this tweet actually, you know, sort of going to the the outside game uh, leads to further solicitation for the January 6th rally on extremist internet websites, uh, as well as right-wing media Uh, A notable example is Kelly Meggs, the head of the Florida Oath Keepers, who posted a message on Facebook uh, just within a couple hours after the tweet was sent, pledging that his group would work together with the Three Percenters and the Proud Boys uh, to support that rally. Wow. But what all this basically shows is that by mid-December, Plan B has started to come together. Uh, The outside game continues, but now with this extra rally component and clearly with some uh, direct involvement of extremist groups, the inside game has now evolved. Uh, We learned actually just this week in the New York Times that it's in the first half of December that the fake electors plan really comes together. The hmm. idea was that the Trump people could just register fake slates of electors in contested states and use that as grounds for Republican members of Congress to object to the certification of the election on January 6th. This is the Eastman plan. Yeah, you know, I, I actually Eastman was involved like really throughout the most important part of the Eastman plan has to do with Mike Pence. And we'll talk about that later. But oh, it, it all, interesting. It all okay. comes together. You know, so to execute this plan, they actually had like point people directing the operation in each state. Uh, each of the seven contested states including in Pennsylvania one Doug Mastriano now the GOP nominee for governor in this yep. year's election. Yeah. Um but the documents that have emerged show that the lawyers who were coming up with this plan were actively talking about how it was probably not legal even as it was like taking shape and actively referring to the fake electors as fake electors before they eventually there's actually an email where one of them says like hey, maybe we should, instead of calling them fake electors, call them alternative electors. And he adds a smile emoji at the end. <laughs> this, is, this is good TV. So oh, uh, that is to say plan B is not necessarily the craziest set of ideas uh, emerging at the table, but Uh, It is the genesis of the fake electors, the rally, the idea that the election isn't really decided until January 6th, and essentially all the legal trouble Trump and his cronies now find themselves in. Plan B would be uh, much easier to implement if DOJ were to lend it an air of legitimacy by suggesting that they saw evidence of widespread voter fraud. However, it's clear that one person who is not on board with Plan B is Bill Barr.
1: Yeah. So, hence so, the catch up. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Uh,
0: so, on the fourteenth, the day the electoral college voted, Trump announced that Barr would be resigning, which he officially did on December twenty third. He is succeeded automatically in an acting capacity by Jeffrey Rosen, who was the deputy attorney general. Mm-hmm. Uh, he incidentally had taken over for Rod Rosenstein, who starred in a prequel mini series about Trump crimes in the twenty sixteen campaign and early days of yep. the administration. But uh, Rosen, now acting AG, appoints as his deputy, Richard Donahue, who had been the U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of New York. Um, So they both testified in one of these hearings. And things sort of once they once they come in, things just get like completely insane at DOJ in that last week of December and first days of January rosen and donahue continue to strongly resist trump's efforts to have the justice department announce that election fraud had been uncovered you know this this is when another character comes into the fold named scott perry he's a congressman from pennsylvania 10th district uh he is the first one we heard about asking for a pardon following january 6th right i remember him but perry on december 26th uh Text Mark Meadows saying there's this guy, Jeffrey Clark, he's the acting head of DOJ's civil division, and he's on board with plan B. Let's oust Rosen and install Clark as attorney general. Wow. The next day, on December 27th, Trump is on the phone with Donahue and tells him, listen, and this is a direct quote, just say it was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. (sighs) (laughs) I'm going to take a swig of my beer. So, so he's putting direct pressure on the following day, December 28th, Jeffrey Clark approaches Jeffrey Rosen, the acting attorney general and his deputy Richard Donahue and gives them a letter that he proposes be sent to Georgia lawmakers with modified versions uh, in the other close States, you know, Arizona, Michigan, Nevada, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, The letter calls on the state to hold a special legislative session in order to secure alternate slates of electors to overturn the election. Uh, Rosen and Donahue reject the proposal immediately. No such letter is sent. Clark, uh, it turns out, emailed this letter to Rosen and Donahue 20 minutes after it was emailed to him by a guy named Ken Klukowski, who's a senior legal analyst for Breitbart News. Kukowski uh, was the author of a 2010 book called The Blueprint: Obama's Plan to Subvert the Constitution and Build an Imperial Presidency. Wow, which is really interesting because it's like they they talk about like Putin and some of these other authoritarian regimes like they accuse other people of doing the things they themselves are doing.
1: Yeah, well that's um, been part of the playbook for a while, right? right like
0: this this was like this was like a 10 year lag. <laughs> they, 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 they basically like invented this story as an accusation and then realized after they lost the election, like we might be able to put this into practice. Now, keep in mind, this is all happening in support of plan B, right? In support of the effort to get states to send fake electors to the official certification of the vote on January 6th. Wow. That idea from the December 18th meeting, that idea of seizing voting machines, I had thought of as some kooky part of an alternative plan C that was rejected. But it turns out that's actually not the case. Because on December 31st, Trump was down at Mar-a-Lago for New Year's. He uh, rushes back to Washington, D.C. for an emergency meeting at the White House uh, with several Justice, Depart- Justice Department officials. The purpose of this meeting is to get these uh, get the government to seize voting machines. Once again. Wow. So uh, Trump is asking them, why don't you guys seize these machines? Donahue tells him that you know, experts at DHS had already investigated and there was nothing wrong with the voting machines. Uh, Trump then yells, get Ken Cuccinelli on the phone, who was uh, the Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, and starts screaming at Cuccinelli, you're not doing your job. You need to seize these voting machines. Now, Rosen, who was acting attorney general at the time, testified during the uh, fifth hearing that Department of Justice has no legal authority to seize voting machines and that he, as attorney general, absolutely never informed Trump that the Department of Homeland Security could have that authority either.
1: Can I ask you a quick question? Mm -hmm. All of this is coming out in these hearings?
0: Yeah. Continue. Uh, so, So what this says to me is that there wasn't really an elaborate plan C where they were going to like seize voting machines and do a bunch of their own hacking and forensic analysis and try to change the totals or something. They just wanted the optics of seizing the voting machines to be able to officially say we, this we, is corrupt. We seize the voting machines because there are problems. There's something funky about them. We're continuing to investigate just like, so that doubt basically. Oh, uh, that's, that's very Trump though. Like right. and, it's, and it's all, all about, all, like, yeah, all in perception. support of plan B, right. All in support of this fake electors play. So they're trying to pressure these states any way they can to gin up some controversy, some doubt about the legitimacy of the vote, uh, to push state legislatures to appoint their own fake electors. Uh, that last meeting we talked about was on New Year's Eve, on January second. We get the famous call with Brad Raffensperger. So uh, people have probably heard a lot about this, um, but you know, essentially there is direct audio tape of Trump. Calling Raffensburger the Georgia Secretary of State and saying, you know, I just, I want to find 11,780 votes. That's one more than we have uh, because we won the state. You know, so that at this point he's losing by 11,779 votes. He's saying we need one more than that. He is, you know, also calling the chief investigative officer for Raffensburger's office, Francis Watson, and saying, you know, when the right answer comes out, you'll be praised. That this call forms much of the basis for Trump's current legal issues in uh, in Georgia, but th- that you you sort of see in the timeline how that fits into the larger strategy. Yeah. Uh, so Raffensperger was the state attorney general, but they were also trying to work federal prosecutors toward the same end. So uh, former U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Georgia B.J. Pack uh, actually did testify during the second hearing, uh, and he resigned from his position on January fourth later telling the Senate Judiciary Committee that the White House informed him that Trump would fire him if he did not publicly state that his office had found election fraud in Georgia
1: yeah I mean that seems pretty serious also I wonder I wondered at the time and I'm wondering just hearing you talk about Georgia and like I almost feel like losing Georgia was such an emotional thing for for Trump because it's like not supposed to be a swing state right mm-hmm. like this is a red state and the fact that like two Senate seats went Democrat and he lost the presidency. Like I almost feel like he was dedicating more energy almost to,
0: to well, Georgia. You,
1: Maybe he went across the line because of it.
0: Do you remember, do you remember when those Senate seats flipped? January, January 5th. Yeah. <laughs> the day before the riot. Yeah. No, um, I, again, emotions. Yeah. Uh, so, so the day after that call with Raffensperger, uh, January 3rd, we get, uh, the meeting at the White House with top DOJ officials, in which Trump is openly considering a move to replace Acting AG Rosen with Jeffrey Clark. Uh, you know, saying, "What do I have to lose?" This is where Donahue tells him, "You know, Mr. President, we'd resign immediately, and basically, uh, all of the top people at Justice will resign if you promote this unqualified hack." This was the meeting where Donahue also told Clark, you're an environmental lawyer, go back to your office and we'll call you if there's an oil spill, just on a more petty note. (laughs) Um, But isn't that, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be something that
1: Trump would want though? Like all of them to resign?
0: I think so many of them would resign that the justice department would not be able to function. Got it. Uh, And it would, it would clearly show, you know, he's trying to influence people right? He's trying to influence Republican leaders across these states, Republican members of Congress. If he loses the entire leadership of the Department of Justice that are all his allies to begin with, right? It, it shows that there's something non-credible going on here.
1: Interesting. So this is sort of like the Boris Johnson, we're all going to, we all resigned in protest moment. Yeah. Sort of.
0: Yeah. Very similar. Very similar. Um, one thing that's interesting is if if you look at the, and the committee did look at the White House call logs from the afternoon of January 3rd, Officials within the Oval Office were already referring to Jeffrey Clark as acting attorney general. Whoa. So he he was never actually promoted to that position, but clearly that was in the plan. That so was it was the all plan. all part of this plan B to have, you know, to get support from DOJ to try to exert influence on these other states. That's sort of the the big inside game here. Yeah. So, so that's, that is all inside game, you know, trying to work the channels of power to change reality. Um, But we can't forget the outside game, right? And we are now just a few days away from January 6th. So uh, in, in her testimony, Cassidy Hutchinson testified that on January 2nd, Rudy Giuliani told her that Trump and his allies planned to go to the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, She told Meadows about this. And this was when he like just kind of stayed looking at his phone and said things might get real, real bad.
1: Yeah, I remember her saying that in the um, in the hearing.
0: in In her initial testimony uh, that that they showed on videotape, Hutchinson also said that the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers were talked about openly in the context of planning the January sixth rally, especially by and around Rudy Giuliani.
1: Yeah, interesting. Um, that could be that could be significant too, right? Because this sort of collusion, you know, conspiracy yeah. thing.
0: Yeah. So bringing in now uh, your best friend, Mike Lindell, the Pillow guy. Oh, I love that uh, guy. There was an organizer of the rally who sent a text message to Mike Lindell on January 4th saying that Trump would call for the march unexpectedly. Basically that, you know, they weren't going to tell anyone in advance that they were going to march to the Capitol, but that that was the explicit plan from the beginning. Um, and they, they didn't want word to get out to, you know, not risk a countermarch or whatever, but um, that, 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 that was the plan. So just taking a small step back here, let's look at where plan B stands as of January 4th, the outside game is going swimmingly. We have thousands of people committed to attending the rally. We have these right-wing militias engaged as the tip of the spear to breach the Capitol, but the inside game has been almost entirely a failure. DOJ won't move. They've lost all their legal cases. Trump's hands are tied around making Jeffrey Clark attorney general. Uh, and most importantly, no state legislature has actually certified alternative electors. So the deep state works. At this point, it all comes down to Mike Pence. I see this episode ending with like a close-up of Pence's face, uh, you know, when when he tries to look stern and he sort of just looks confused and lost instead. Um, <laughs> for reference, if you look up photos from when he was on the North Korean border, it'd be kind of like that. we'll link that Uh, in the show notes (laughs) so so that that's the end of episode two we're now at episode three episode three is all about january 5th right all about the day before uh the the riot so uh mike pence is not buying the argument that he can step in to rescue plan B. His former lawyer, Greg Jacob, testified in the third hearing that uh, he had advised Pence he did not have the authority to overturn election results. um, And that in his legal opinion, uh, those who wrote the constitution wouldn't have put it in the hands of one person to determine who would be the president of the United States. Seems reasonable. Seems reasonable. Uh, He also said that John Eastman, who was the architect of this strategy of having Pence, you know, essentially unilaterally overturn the election, uh, acknowledged to him privately prior to January 6 that he didn't expect a single Supreme Court justice to support the validity of the fake elector scheme? He, the architect of this plan knew it was illegal, and had had said as much to Trump. You know, so what what Pence does at this point is reaches out to a credible Republican luminary named J. Michael Luddig. Uh, he is a judge, federal judge, a former clerk for Justice Scalia. And he he also testified at this second hearing. He, at the request of Pence's aides, publicly said the vice president has no constitutional authority to intervene in the election certification. Pence eventually cites this uh, opinion from, from Luddig in the letter he wrote on January 6th, publicly saying he would not intervene all to say uh the inside game is slipping away even further uh this is where this is where our narratives start to come together right yeah. so if, if pence won't make the inside game happen maybe the outside game and particularly its scary and violent components can influence or at least delay pence and congress certifying the election for biden
1: I love how you're building this up. I I was sort of thought that you were joking about the, like, this should be a series on, on HBO, but like, I legit think (laughs) like, this is like building up to this, like the inside game is not working. Yeah. And so let's put all of our chips in the outside game.
0: Yeah. So, um, so, uh, according to Cassidy Hutchinson and her testimony on January 5th, Trump directed Mark Meadows to contact Mike Flynn and Roger Stone who both had extensive ties to extremist groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, uh, the leaders of which would later be indicted for seditious conspiracy for their alleged roles in the attack. Uh, As we get toward that night, the night of January 5th, three big things happen. Number one, Rudy Giuliani, uh, John Eastman, and assorted other goons hold a big war room meeting at the Willard Hotel to prep Mm -hmm. for the events of the next day. Um, There's been a lot of conversation about this meeting. We still don't know exactly what happened in the meeting. Uh, According to Cassie Hutchinson, Mark Meadows wanted to go to the meeting, but she persuaded him not to. And instead he just joined by phone. So maybe that's better. I don't know.
1: Yeah. It seems like plausible deniability, except not.
0: (laughs) The second thing that happened that night is extremist groups held a rally in Freedom Plaza right outside of the White House to gin up excitement for the next day. Roger Stone, Alex Jones, Michael Flynn, and a bunch of other people spoke. In the sixth hearing, Sarah Matthews described this in her testimony as bringing Trump a good mood. So that's nice.
1: Oh,
0: okay. Uh, Separately and in parallel to the semi-official, unofficial war room and the extremist rally, the leaders of the extremist groups met directly to coordinate what they were going to do the next day. Uh, so the committee showed video in the first hearing from that documentary filmmaker who was following the Proud Boys and showed mm. directly the face-to-face meeting between leadership of the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers on that night of January 5th.
1: Yeah, that was that first hearing. Yeah, yeah. yeah I so remember that.
0: So I'll say here, the most important things that happened on January 5th, we don't really know the details of yet. Uh, specifically, you know, what was happening in that war room, what was Trump's involvement uh, what was happening at the Capitol that day. We don't know yet if you know Barry Loudermilk or other Republican members of Congress were actually giving reconnaissance tours to the next day's rioters, uh, and if they were, at whose direction they were working. Um, so there are still all these unknown pieces. So when you hear like the dam is starting to break, like there's all these other pieces that are potentially important to proving that actual crimes were committed by people at the very top uh, that, that we don't quite have a full picture of yet.
1: Yeah. One question I'll have for you at the end of this, I think, is, and this gets a little bit into the next steps, is like, is Donald Trump the only target for legal action or is it sort of all of those people at the top? I know there's ongoing stuff against Steve Bannon and and whatever, but like one thing that I would love to talk about at the end is like other people who are potentially in jeopardy over this.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think um, I'm not a legal expert, uh, but I actually weirdly... Did once uh, intern for a law firm that was involved in a RICO, a federal RICO case, which is the uh, organized crime statute.
1: Oh, and this is
0: this is sort of—I mean, Trump operates. You're like basically a an ac- mob boss, right? Trump, Trump operates like a mob boss, and in in mob prosecutions, of course, there's not one person who's the target. This is an organization; it's a criminal organization. But if someone who's lower in the organization. Is willing to testify against someone who's higher in the organization. That's very helpful to them in terms of their own uh, punishment they'll face. Hmm. So, um, so for sure, Trump's not the only target. I mean, this investigation at DOJ has supposedly been going on since day one of Merrick Garland coming in, and it wasn't really until this week that it even seemed like Trump may be a target of that investigation. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so definitely not the only one who who Department of Justice would be investigating. But I think to the extent, you know, Trump is at the head of the criminal conspiracy or the criminal organization, he's the big fish.
1: Okay, you you earned a sip of that coffee of yours.
0: <laughs> so now, now we're on to uh, episode four. Episode four is all about the morning of January 6th and the rally. Uh, so the the setup for this episode is that the inside game has now totally imploded. Right, we said Pence wrote that letter saying he wouldn't intervene. White House lawyer Eric Hirschman uh, has testified to the committee that Rudy Giuliani privately admitted to him on the morning of January sixth that Pence did not have the authority to overturn the election, uh, even though Giuliani later gave a speech at the Ellipse to the crowd uh, saying the opposite. Um, so so then it becomes all about the outside game, right? What can we do to sow chaos, to delay, to obstruct? to destroy. At 1030 AM that day, the Proud Boys began assembling on the mall. This is
1: January 6th.
0: Yes. They're not there to attend the rally, according to their documentarian, Nick Quested. Did. Uh, they didn't even go to the rally while Trump was speaking. Um, 200 Proud Boys did reconnaissance around the perimeter of the Capitol and attacked the weakest barricade first. Hmm. Just as Trump was whipping the crowd into a frenzy and directing them uh, to march to the Capitol, something that bears investigation. And I'm sure is under investigation is if you watch Trump's speech, he says, we're going to go to the Capitol. He says, Anyone you want, but I think right here. And he, and he motions with his, uh, with his body. Now, what's he talking about there?
1: Yeah. What does that mean?
0: There's not more than one Capitol building. There is more than one police barricade. So the question is, did Trump somehow know that the Proud Boys by this time had identified the weakest barricade and already begun the breach because the direction that he motioned was in the direction of that weakest barricade?
1: Oh, that it seems like a little bit of like a conspiracy theory stretch to me, but maybe.
0: Well, I, I mean, I think this is a conspiracy, right? Like that the, the proud no, no, boys no, no, no. have been yeah, indicted okay. for seditious conspiracy. <laughs> that's, that's what we're talking about here. I see what you did there. <laughs> so at that rally, uh, some people brought weapons, as we know, including AR-15s. This is according to police radio transmissions. Trump knew the crowd was armed, yet he asked for security checks to be loosened as the rally was beginning. Uh, specifically, he one of the magnetometers removed uh, saying, you know, I don't fucking care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Did they actually remove the magnetometers? I don't know. Yeah. Interesting. Um, House. But I think the magnetometers were only around the perimeter of the ellipse rally. So it wouldn't really matter. Right. Like the, the, that's kind of
1: why I was wondering about this focus on the magnetometers. Like it, you know, like, I guess it's, it goes to show that he knew they were there were armed people in like a short vicinity of the Capitol.
0: Right, and that they were there for some other purpose than to hurt Trump, right? I mean, the implication yeah. of saying they're not here to hurt me is they are here to hurt someone else.
1: Not, uh, Yeah, I don't know about that though. Like, I mean, there's a lot of people in the United States that just carry guns not thinking that they're going to hurt somebody, right?
0: I guess it's a question of, did he say they're not here to hurt me. Or did he say, they're not here to hurt me?
1: Yeah, no, exactly. Like,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what um, I'm talking about. So that morning, uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy called Cassidy Hutchinson to uh, express his concern that Trump would try to come to the Capitol after Trump said it in his speech at the ellipse. So basically Trump you know, gives this speech, says, march to the Capitol, I'm coming with you. And is in fact very keen to go to the Capitol. Secret Service agent Robert Engel uh, said that that would not be safe and insisted on taking him to the White House instead. And then according to Cassie Hutchinson, Trump became very angry, insisted he wanted to go to the Capitol, grabbed for the steering wheel of the presidential SUV with one hand and lunged at that agent Engel with his other hand. So let me pause here just to note Trying to grab the steering wheel with one hand, when you have hands the size of Donald Trump's, was just absolutely doomed from the beginning. Like, so like from the like, back seat too. It's it's like it's like the claw machine in an arcade. Like it was never going to happen with those <laughs> hands. So uh, so from the perspective of the crowd at the rally, we heard from Stephen Ayers, an Ohio resident who participated in the riot despite not being affiliated with any extremist group. Um, and he noted how Trump uh quote got everybody riled up, told everybody to head on down, end quote, and that that they were. I mean, he said we were following what he said, uh, referring to Trump. He also said that he he had no plans to go to the Capitol until Trump said it at the rally. Yeah. Now, you know, saying things to people at a rally is not against the law. Um, famously, you know, is is uh protected by uh, the first amendment to the constitution. The question is what else had been happening around this? You know, what did Trump know about what the proud boys were doing about the rest of the outside game, the violent elements of the outside game? And, and how did this, this plan to basically whip up the crowd and direct them that way? How did that fit into you know ultimately trying to salvage plan B?
1: Yeah, because I think Donald Trump is trying to frame this to the extent that it's coherent, what he's saying in, in, you know, response to this. I think he's trying to frame this as like, I just gave a speech and people were loving it. So I kept saying shit, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah. So I think this this episode basically ends with a disheveled Trump storming into the White House, followed by his even more disheveled security detail. And then you have the camera zoom out and kind of fly over the mall. And zoom back in to the first proud boys breaching that police barricade
1: interesting so it, during the zoom out you see people walking towards the Capitol from the, right the, right the yeah with
0: with with the right with like the mass of thousands of people behind them yeah this is good man this is good <laughs> solid tv right so that brings us to episode five This is the January 6th riot itself. So this is sort of like Game of Thrones, like the second to last episode is the crescendo.
1: Um, and it's just all fighting.
0: More or less. Yeah. So a- according to a timeline that was presented by the committee in the second hearing, by 2.10 p.m., the Capitol had been breached and the mob had begun to swarm in. Yeah. As that this mob- was that
1: video at that first hearing that was just so tough to watch.
0: Yeah, as, as that mob became more and more vocal, you know, calling for Mike Pence to be hanged, um, Cassidy Hutchinson overheard a conversation between uh, Cipollone, the White House counsel, and Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff, in which Cipollone argued that they needed to act urgently to prevent violence. Uh, Meadows reminded Cipollone of the president's current feelings, uh, saying that Trump thought Pence deserved it and that uh, he doesn't think they, the rioters, are doing anything wrong. Wow, Trump became uh, aware of the breach and at 2.24 p.m. he tweeted, uh, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what was necessary. The committee also revealed that this mob, as they were chanting hang Mike Pence, came within 40 feet of Mike Pence uh, as he was being evacuated to an underground loading dock.
1: And there's all sorts of evidence of those writers and insurrectionists seeing that tweet from Trump that he sent at 2.24 p.m
0: yeah yeah so uh, so Greg Jacob, this is going back to Pence's lawyer um was there with Pence. He testified that the Secret Service instructed Pence and his aides to get into cars right as the riot was beginning. most of them did. Pence did not. and uh the head of his security detail basically said, you know I, I can assure you that we we you wouldn't be evacuated from the capitol without my permission." Pence responded, I know you and I trust you, but you're not the one driving the car. Whoa. And you know, Pence Pence also didn't want the the world to see him fleeing, right? To to give the the rioters that satisfaction. Um so he basically spent the next five hours in a secure underground location within the Capitol building complex uh while this riot was unfolding. Yeah. Um the Department of Justice did speak to a confidential witness who uh, traveled to Washington with the proud boys and swore under oath that they would have killed Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi. If they were given the chance. Oh my God. Um, yeah.
1: I said, I said this in a previous episode and I think it's worth re-mentioning here. Like on that day, Mike Pence showed, showed bravery.
0: Yeah. So Pence's security team at this time was fearing for their own lives. They were calling their family members to say goodbye essentially. Yep. And so, you know, getting back to the White House at 2.53 and 2.58 PM, Don Jr. sent Mark Meadows a text message saying that he wanted his father to quote, condemn this shit, end quote, and to uh, go to the mattresses, which by which he meant, you know, go Go to the mats go, go all in Trump for his part was uh, completely on board with the idea of hanging Mike Pence during the riot. Yeah, so so much was made in the final hearing of this this hundred eighty seven minutes, right after the riot started, and before Trump did anything. Yeah, uh, we we still don't know who exactly he was talking to during this time, just over three hours. We don't know what he was saying to whoever he was talking to, but it doesn't take much to sort of look at the context, look at the buildup to this, infer that he his last best hope at this point is that this riot. This, this riot that spawned from the outside game of his plan uh, starts to influence the inside game, right? Starts to move members of Congress, encourage them to object to the votes, encourage them to put their own pressure on Mike Pence, whatever it may be. Yeah. Uh, Jared Kushner said in videotape testimony that Kevin McCarthy uh, called and pleaded for the White House to intervene, uh, saying that, that he thought McCarthy was scared during this call. Again, Trump is doing nothing despite having the entire national security apparatus of our country at his fingertips. It was actually eventually Mike Pence who gave the order for the National Guard to come in. You know, I I don't know exactly what bearing that has on anyone's criminal liability, but it's interesting that the White House told Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and had Kayleigh McEnany, their press secretary, tweet that it was Trump who gave that order which was yeah. not the
1: case. Which was not true. I mean, it's, I don't know if criminal negligence uh, applies in this case, but there were people that
0: died as a result of this. So yep. maybe. Yep. So it, it wasn't until after the National Guard started arriving uh, under that Pence order uh, to, to back up the Capitol Police and, and Metro PD that Trump finally tweeted out a, a tepid plea to the rioters to go home. Incidentally, many of them did in response to that tweet. Uh, So eventually the Capitol is cleared. Congress is getting ready to vote. As they are getting ready to vote in the minutes before the certification begins, an aide to Senator Ron Johnson named Sean Riley texts an aide to Mike Pence named Chris Hodgson that the senator wants to personally hand deliver information to the vice president about alternate slates of electors for Michigan and Wisconsin, to which Hodson replies, do not give that to him. Yeah. So that the, the game is like still working, even post riot.
1: Yeah. And Ron Johnson was like in the Capitol while this was happening, too. Yeah. He was,
0: he was voting on it. Yeah. This episode ends with Pence presiding over the Senate, uh, over the joint, joint session. Uh, swinging the gavel and j- declaring Joe Biden the winner and officially president-elect in the early morning of January 7th. Yeah.
1: As a quick aside, I remember what it felt like that day. Being, I mean, I was like a mile away. You were a mile away from that. But, you know, yeah. And I, I'm pretty sure I stayed up and watched Pence actually gavel at-
0: yeah, it. Yeah. Was, it was crazy. Yeah. Uh, finally, we have episode six. <laughs>
1: Episode six is this the final episode? Is this is a season finale.
0: This is the this is the mini series finale.
1: Yeah, mini series finale. Yeah, I'm I'm yeah. thinking Netflix is is where we need to go. Yeah.
0: So episode six covers the days following January sixth. Uh, this episode is all about accountability or the lack thereof. Yeah. Uh, it includes a bunch of things not covered in the hearings actually that we won't really talk about today, like the second impeachment of Donald Trump, but there are some important things that we've learned. So on January seventh. Trump did give a videoed speech criticizing the January 6th attack. What we saw in the final hearing last week was footage of Trump's rehearsals for that speech. Yeah, outtakes, uh, which showed that he was extremely hesitant and in some cases refused to make the speech as it was written. He refused to say that people who broke the law will pay for it. He refused to say the election was over. On a purely petty note, he stumbled over the word "yesterday." But like, what's the
1: "yesterday" thing? Like, is does he have a speech impediment, or like, he just couldn't like even think about January sixth?
0: So this is this is more than we need to like go deep into. But I think he was talking about reading as opposed to saying it. I can't really tell because when he said it, he didn't sound weird. But he did make a comment in another part of the rehearsal that he was having trouble seeing the cues. Yeah,
1: yeah, I I think that's been a you know, common thing. I mean, it's, it's a petty thing for them to bring up, which, you know, like we said, we're here for it, but like, it's, it's not that he was like in that one instance, probably not like, you know, choking up over the nostalgia. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, um, so this period is also when the pardon requests start to uh, flow in. Mm -hmm. So the committee has alleged that, that John Eastman was aware that his coup memo and other legal recommendations were potentially criminal. He uh, emailed Rudy Giuliani saying famously, I've decided I should be on the pardon list if that is still in the works, but uh, did not in fact receive a pardon. Uh, he, uh, for what it's worth, pleaded the fifth 100 times in his taped deposition. So um, that's, wow. that's where he is at this point. On January 11th, Alabama representative Mo Brooks sent an email in which he uh, asked Mark Meadows for a pardon for himself, for Matt Gates, for Louis Gohmert, and quote, every congressman and senator, unquote, who, who voted to reject the uh, electoral college votes from Arizona and Pennsylvania. Jeez. Uh, White House aides also have mentioned that Andy Biggs of Arizona, Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, and Scott Perry of Pennsylvania had all requested preemptive pardons.
1: I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene's probably going to need a pardon at some point in her life. Let's be real, whether it's over <laughs> this or something else.
0: Who knows? So Who I, knows? I see this this episode ending kind of like the movie, Charlie Wilson's War. Do you ever see that movie? Yeah. Good movie. Great movie. But where, you know, in, in at the end of that movie, which is about the US involvement in the war in Afghanistan against yep. the Soviet Union in the 80s, it basically ends with, the U.S. weapons flowing to the Mujahideen future Al-Qaeda, and you sort of see how this uh, this, ep- this episode has sowed the seeds of future destruction. Um, the best image I can think about to end this final episode here is Kevin McCarthy, who on January 13th, as they were discussing impeachment, said Trump bears responsibility for the insurrection. 15 days later, on January 28th, flies to Mar-a-Lago, to presumably melt into a puddle of pure gravel.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, you mentioned this in the Chris Blattman uh, interview. You were like, "Yeah, it, it happened really quickly that they were <laughs> re- reverse course on this."
0: Uh, so that's that's wow. our series. That's my story.
1: Well, Mike, that was that was really impressive. I haven't seen anything like that. Um, I almost feel like this should be like a written. We should turn this into some sort of written thing. Um, more importantly, Netflix. Our DMs are open. But man, that was really good, Mike. Uh, also terrifying. Let's just be real.
0: But thanks. Yeah, for for the Netflix executives, we are on social media. <laughs> you can find us <laughs> at find News and Bruce Pod. At News and Bruce Pod on Twitter and Instagram and DMs are open as Errol said. <laughs> Should we talk about what's
1: next real briefly? Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned that this is really season 1. This is I mean we talked about it as like mini series like the the events that you talked about as a mini series but like the 7 or 8 episodes that were the hearings seem to only be season 1 and they and they have Mhm alluded to and probably have even like scheduled follow-on hearings presumably i mean you you sort of dropped crumbs throughout your presentation presumably it's going to be on some of those topics you know what did we know about that meeting at the Willard beforehand what was trump's involvement what happened you know in more detail at that speech and again this is all sort of like trying to put together this case of intent and mm-hmm. you know like conspiracy um which seems to be the most likely sort of route prosecutors can go. There was a great daily episode last week before the final uh, hearing mm-hmm. that talked to one of the top lawyers on the on the Mueller investigation um, who had been following this and it it sort of went through what some of the most likely charges against Trump could be and and couldn't be. And I mean, my main takeaway was it's really going to be hard. even with all the evidence that you so eloquently presented, it's going to yeah. be really hard. Who it's not going to be hard to put into jail is um, Steve Bannon, who, according to Steve Bannon, in a discussion with Alex Jones, is one of the greatest political thinkers since the founding fathers.
0: Credible source on that.
1: Credible source. He was convicted. Steve Bannon was convicted last Friday of two counts of contempt of Congress, basically for ignoring the subpoena from the January 6th committee. I mean, It would have been great to hear from him, but he totally ignored it. And that's against the law. Like when Congress subpoenas you to come and speak, like you gotta show up. Uh, so each count, again, two counts, each count carries a maximum sentence of one year in prison and a hundred thousand dollar fine. Mm. Presumably they can dip into the stop the steal stuff to fund the the hundred thousand. <laughs> but you know, he he was convicted. Sentencing is October twenty-first, but in any case, um, he'll at least be out at the latest right before the 2024 election. So what could go wrong? Perfect. Good timing. In other news, as and you alluded to this before it it appears that the DOJ is actually investigating Trump himself mm-hmm. and and Merrick Garland has been on public record like basically journalists keep asking him is Trump under investigation and he answers by nobody in the country is above the law. And they're like, well, even the president? And they're like, and Merrick Garland's like, what part of nobody <laughs> is above the
0: law do you not understand? Yeah, you know, we we talked to, at when these hearings were starting about sort of the three audiences for them, right? Yeah. Being Congress, the Department of Justice, and the public. Yeah, And it does seem like Merrick Garland is feeling the heat from this. Yeah, yeah.
1: No, he, he certainly is. And I think he realizes balls in his court. He's not going to follow on the pettiness, but like there was some real stuff that was presented there that, um, there was a lot more meat on the bones than, than a lot of people thought there was going to be.
0: And I'll just, I'll I'll say also in terms of the impact these hearings have had, like the direct impact, uh, just to talk about the other two audiences, the impact on the public has certainly exceeded expectations. Yeah. More than half of the public says that they are paying attention to what's happening with the committee hearings. More than half of the public believes Donald Trump should be indicted. Um, and, and those are both up significantly from before the hearings. And And I think it has just been because of the way they've done it with, as we talked about the drip tease of news, you know, we didn't talk too much in this episode about their tactics, but they've also yeah. been just excellent. The production values, the timing, the structuring of, of a little bit of news coming out in each hearing uh, a lot in some cases, they they really have been having an impact on public opinion. Um, we can talk about some of the second order impacts of that in a minute. I think you might get to some of this. Um, but then the, the last audience was Congress, where there actually is a bill that seems to have a realistic chance of passing. It's not a slam dunk. I think they might have nine of the ten Republicans on board that they need for this, but that yep. would prevent you know it would make explicit what Mike Pence and his lawyers already knew was true, which is that the vice president cannot unilaterally overturn an election and and would would add some other protections you know it's it's not the election reform we need, but there is something happening. And and I don't think that would be the case if not for these hearings.
1: Yeah. You're referring to a house bill that was passed with, it was a bipartisan bill. There were still lots of Republicans that voted against it, but lots, you know, less, but still some Republicans voted for it. It's now in the Senate. It needs 60 votes to overcome kind of a a likely filibuster attempt. Um, And so that's, that's what, is going on. But yes, that is a positive byproduct. You mentioned that people are paying attention. Um, meanwhile, because we live in the upside down, um, Trump is polling super well and basically starting to give presidential campaign speeches. And even though there are probably more people who think he should be indicted, like it's not clear that the January 6th hearings have hurt his popularity with his base, which is sizable. And very loud and very obnoxious. The one thing that I've been thinking about, and I haven't seen a whole lot on this out there, but like Trump has made a career out of turning any attention into good things for Donald Trump, including bad attention. Most of Hmm. the attention that Trump has gotten in the mainstream press since the 1980s has been tabloid or bad or whatever. And yet he keeps rising. And yet he, he ended up as, as president of the United States. So like, it's not just Teflon Don, like he's actually very good at turning like, oh, people are talking about Trump. Um, And that's a good thing because then people are going to vote for Trump.
0: So no disagreement with that, that, you know, his, his strategy is attention-based and this amounts to some type of attention. That being said, you've seen at least sort of the Republican elite, the donor class, Uh, the ones who set the agenda, even places like Fox News in some cases, starting to move away from Trump a little bit. I think before the hearings, he was without a doubt the favorite to be the Republican nominee for president in 2024. That's probably still the case, but you've seen a lot of uh, attention shift over to Ron DeSantis, which I don't know if I would consider that a good thing. Like actually when when we talked about the first hearing, we talked about how important it is for the committee to make the case that even if you like Donald Trump, even if you think he did good things as president, that this is a different conversation. This is too far. This is un American. This is not in line with the the principles we all have to share for our country to continue functioning. And I think they've actually made that case extremely effectively. Almost every witness has been a Republican. The Republicans on the committee, Liz Cheney, Adam, Adam Kinzinger, have have had a lot of, of time uh, in the spotlight. <laughs> the challenge is that the natural extension of that argument is, therefore, we need to find someone as much like Trump as possible without being Donald Trump. And that's yep. the space that DeSantis is trying to fill and, and doing a pretty effective job at filling currently.
1: I think um, he's doing an effective job at that. I, I have a prediction. I think Trump is going to announce he's running for president fairly soon for two reasons.
0: He he suggested that he would.
1: Yeah, he he definitely his his team leaked it, right? They totally did. And and I think it's two primary reasons. One is that because of the hearings, perhaps people are starting to move away from him and he's going to make people choose. And then the second reason is everybody in the Republican party is telling him not to do it until after the, uh, midterms, which he has had no love for the Republican party throughout his time. So I think that is almost going to have like the opposite effect that they think it's going to have.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. Like I, I think it'd be great if he did that because, and I think pretty much every Democrat who pays attention to politics thinks that too, right. To the extent we can make the election, typically the party out of power, Wants to make the election a referendum on the current leadership. The party yeah. in power wants to make it a choice. Yep. Trump announcing his candidacy makes the midterm election immediately a choice. If a not choice. a referendum on do you want Donald Trump back? Right? Like that's that's where really the best yeah. thing could happen to Democrats. Yeah,
1: do do you want Donald Trump to come back and have a compliant Congress?
0: All right. Now, now I think I think Trump would reject that argument. Obviously, he doesn't think that people hate him, but I think he probably knows that announcing now makes him look extremely weak,
1: right? I don't If, know.
0: if, you're, if you're Donald Trump six months ago, there's no reason for you to announce your candidacy because you're just steamrolling and doing whatever you want. You also have more restrictions on your activity, on your fundraising, whatever, once you announce. Uh, the, the only reason to do it is if you're in a position of weakness and you want to get out ahead of other potential candidates
1: which is why i think he's going to do it but but your your points i think are really well taken as well kudos to mike this it's really been a phenomenal rundown the timeline that you put together is great you've been up you know later than you'd like to admit on a couple of nights um putting this together we all thank you for it um and we we look forward to the the netflix
0: documentary coming out
1: or maybe it's not a documentary maybe it's like a based on a true story drama
0: no no this is this is the like you remember uh that hbo uh hbo has done a bunch of these like they did the game change one after the oh yeah. Election. yeah 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 like they did one about the financial crisis like that's that like this is like the uh the the serialized uh drama yep on I'm it. here Netflix, for it. call us i'm here News for bruise pod social media
1: thanks again mike uh well mike. let's let's go on to some spicy nuggets then
0: want to start Uh,
1: i've got one as uh ilana our producer is want to do she helped us put together a couple videos of our interview with chris blattman and there's one um particular tweet that she put out that got friend of the pod francesca aramiva to respond being like yeah yeah, that's great and all but like can we get some info on mike's skincare regime (laughs) Which I thought was her her exact tweet, which we will uh, link as my spicy nugget, is unrelated. But can M at M Heslin drop details for his skin routine? So shout out to Francesca, shout out to Mike's
0: lovely I'll radiant say this. skin. It's not easy to be a man in the news media, Errol. <laughs> you know, I do my best to craft thoughtful questions for our guests. Uh, you know, to prepare uh and, and really put some thought into stories and <laughs> all these people want to talk about is 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 my looks. Is your looks? Yeah, that's great. Love it. All right. My spicy nugget. Uh, and that was just a joke, nothing but love for Francesca. Uh, my spicy nugget is have you seen this story coming out of New York about Lee Zeldin, the uh Republican current US representative and, and Republican nominee for governor? No. So last week, Lee Zeldin was attacked on stage at a campaign event by a man wielding a sharp object—not a knife. It was like a sharpened keychain. Wow. Uh, that uh, you know was is obviously not a joke or uh, yeah, you know, not 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 spicy in the direction that we like to think of things being spicy. Um, very serious, but um, you know, so so this uh, police are there and and take this attacker into custody. He was released after just a few hours. And uh, Zeldin very quickly started putting out messaging, fundraising uh, about the fact that this attacker was released so quickly. The reason for that being that his a big part of his platform and, and one of his big issues is this bail reform that New York has recently undergone that allows nonviolent, Offenders to be released without bail as they await trial. You know, so so people looking at this thought that's odd. Like, why would why would someone be released so quickly after? It
1: sounds violent too,
0: right? So they looked into it. The lead prosecutor, like the I don't know if it's a DA or equivalent position, in the place where this crime happened was until extremely recently Lee Zeldin's campaign chair. And was actually at the rally. And the the way it appears, this prosecutor found sort of a loophole and like picked a very specific charge to levy at this attacker so that he would be released almost immediately, thereby giving the campaign fodder for this fundraising messaging oh. and news cycle. Wow. I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll put in the notes that Chris Hayes did a great, segment on this on his show. That is some ago.
1: that is some jujitsu right there. Isn't that
0: spicy? Yeah.
1: That is spicy. Uh well Mike, thanks again. Um great to see you. Uh we'll be back soon for for another probably more normal ish episode. But in the meantime, um thanks for doing that. That
0: was really good. This was fun. Talk to you soon, brother. All right. News and brews is hosted by Mike Heslin and Aaron Our producer is Alana Evans. This episode was recorded Thursday, July 28th, 2022 at 3 p.m. Eastern time. Thanks for listening.